Good morning. This morning, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. For when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. I, I was so grateful to grab a cup of coffee during our, our break there, and I leaned over to Sadai Anthony Sami while I was pouring my cup. I said, Sadai, thanks so much for this coffee. It's going to keep me awake during my sermon. And then he replied so quickly, yes, and the rest of us also. Um, however, I think with the, if you were looking in, the, in your printed worship order at the title of the sermon, I'm sure you'll stay awake whether you've had coffee or not. But this is pretty, pretty easy. If you heard me preach on 1 Corinthians a few years ago, this is light compared to what, what we discussed in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> you know, we've been looking at the, uh, Paul's uh, amazing ancient letter to the churches in Ephesus. And you might remember before Easter, we had gotten to the end of chapter four. And, and Paul had urged the, the Ephesians in chapter four, you may remember the expression, he had urged them to put on the new self, the God-like self. And there's another way that he puts that expression. He goes on in the beginning of chapter five to say, therefore, be imitators of God. That's really what it means to put on the new self, the God-like self, to imitate him, but, as Paul goes on, as beloved children. We're imitating our daddy. We want to grow up to be like dad. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And then Paul applies that thread of, of putting on the new self thinking to human sexuality. He says it even applies to that. Putting on the new self as a Christian, the godlike self, even applies to us as sexual beings. And I thought I'd start by just quoting uh, very briefly a, a portion of an article by The Hill in, in 2018. So this is already almost five years old. Uh, but this article had pointed out how the adverse consequences of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and onward 
might include, okay, so they mean the, 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 the negative effect, the, cult, the negative cultural impact of the sexual revolution might include, and they quote, four in 10 children are born non-maritally, who will experience on average diminished academic, emotional, and economic outcomes. Lone parenting also significantly is fueling historic wealth and income gaps between the poor and the rich, black and white, and even men and women. They go on to say that 57% of Americans cohabit and are more likely to increase than decrease the risk of divorce should the couple marry. And it would include the volume of casual sexual encounters leaving in their wake historic rates of sexually transmitted infections, depression, and loneliness. And the articles that they use to contribute to this statement are, they check out, statistically. You know, 60 years after the American sexual revolution, I think the term revolution seems to have been very fitting for that time period because, as you know, revolutions do not reform. Revolutions demolish. Revolutions tear down completely to build something new in their place. Our young adults, our children, our grandchildren are living in a new world 60 years later where sexual promiscuity, gender fluidity, confusion about these things, and of course, abuse have been normalized the world over, especially in the West. Well, the ancient Ephesians knew a very similar type of society. But the gospel of Christianity provided for the Ephesians refreshing clarity, liberating clarity. And they discovered through Paul's teaching and through the rest of the New Testament that human sexuality is first about God and not us. And you know what? It's better that way anyway. And I hope by the end of this, you'll, you'll agree or at least move closer to agreeing that if human sexuality is first about God and not you, it's actually a better way of living. And we're going to talk about imitating God in our sexuality. We're also going to talk about imitating the world, which of course Paul is trying to discourage in this passage. And then finally, we're going to talk about imitating Jesus Christ in our sexuality. So imitating God, not imitating the world, so that we can imitate Christ, put on the new Christ-like self. Biblical sexuality is about imitating God. I don't know if you've ever heard it brought up that way, but that's the simplest way to begin today so that we know what Paul is talking about. For instance, you may have heard of this, but in Genesis chapter 1, it all started there. It says that God created humanity, man in his own image, and he specified male and female. He created them. A man is the image of God on this planet. A woman is the image of God on this planet. Male and female, he created them. And so that means that our sexuality and our gender are not our own to design. They are God's to design. For instance, when Moses, um, long, long before the Apostle Paul, when Moses said to the Israelites in the wilderness as they were moving 
to Canaan to start a new society, he said, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable, uh, abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. When Moses said that to the Israelites, he was referring to, you can read it in Leviticus chapter 18. He was referring to everything he had just said prior, and he was talking about adultery. He was talking about incest. He was talking about homosexuality. He was talking about bestiality. And interestingly enough, he was talking about child sacrifice. And you wonder what that was doing in there. I think it'll be plain in a minute. God's purpose back then was to form a new society with Abraham's descendants in the land of Canaan. And for God to form a new society, uh, this is a people group that had come out of Egypt and were now populating the land of Canaan. For God to form a new society out of ancient Israel, the first thing above all is they needed to reflect his holiness. He was forming a new society to reflect his holiness, but secondly, this is why God had, had, had prohibited all of those practices, because God in that society was trying to establish stable households built on healthy marriages, and through those codes, that sexual ethic code, he was trying to protect marriage, and he was trying to protect children, the most vulnerable among us. And so Paul, in a similar fashion to the Ephesians, many, many centuries later, Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that means greed, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And when, when Paul uses that expression, sexual immorality, the Greek word he employed was porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it was a Greek word that basically referred to all types of sexual misconduct. It was a general word to describe anything outside of male to female monogamous marriage. If you don't know what that means, a man and a woman get married, and in general, except for some extreme circumstances, they stay together. And that's the context of human sexuality from the biblical perspective. You see Moses illustrate that and, and, and command it, and now you see Paul and the apostles backing that up in the first century in the New Testament church. But, some people say, and maybe you feel this way, or you have at least heard this, or you've been approached by uh, somebody with this uh, line of thinking and you didn't know what to say, well, well, then I hope you'll be listening. But some people say, didn't Jesus' message of love and forgiveness change and nullify those Old Testament sex laws? Didn't the law of Moses and its sexual code, wasn't that abolished and now is, is irrelevant because of Jesus' message to love and forgive people? Those, those old Leviticus uh, passages, they don't matter anymore in the 21st century. Well, I want to gently but firmly say, no, that's not true. The laws of the Old Testament regarding human sexuality, they don't, in general, they don't change because God hasn't changed since then. And if God hasn't changed, the image of God hasn't changed. 
And the image of God is you, my friends. Jesus freed us from our sins, but he did not free us from what it means to be a human being. And to be a human being means you bear the image of God whether you worship him or not. The laws of the Bible's sexual ethics are not outdated because the image of God is not outdated. And you and I bear his image. Unlike the ancient Jews, the Gentiles of Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world were accustomed to very loose sexual standards. For instance, the ancient Greek politician, Demosthenes, had once said this, that the, and he, this is what he said, and, and he said this as though it were common knowledge and appropriate and good. He said, the prostitutes we have for our pleasure, the concubines for the daily care of our bodies and our wives, so that we can have legitimate children and a true guardian of the house. Does that not sound like some of today's politicians or rock, you know, celebrities, right? We have this for this and that for that. Now, obviously, in those times, in Paul's day, if you were a Greek male, if you were a Roman male, if you were free, well, you were at the top of the sexual food chain. And what did that lead to? It led to rampant, rampant promiscuity. It led to rivalry between husbands and wives. And it led to outrageous abuse of women and the poor and children. And so Christian sexual ethics that were adopted by the apostles in Jesus Christ from the ancient Jewish moral law was refreshingly countercultural. Don't you see that? because it stabilized families. It promoted the dignity of women. It protected children. And it promoted the dignity of the poor. And it brought order and healing to the sexual and relational chaos of that time. And so Paul is asserting that this sexuality, reflecting God's holiness in our physical beings and in our sexual practices, this is actually liberating not what the world is teaching us. The so-called purity culture of the recent evangelical church has been criticized, uh, openly and vehemently criticized for its legalism, its shaming, and its hypocrisy. And if you're my age or older, you can probably uh, agree with me that some of that criticism is well-deserved. But the weakness and the frailty and the hypocrisy of the purity culture in American conservative Christianity does not nullify God's call to sexual purity as defined as imitating his character. If sexual purity is about imitating God, then we're still called to it, even though we fail, even though at times we're hypocritical, even though at times we deal with and struggle with legalism and shame, even though there is no place for those with a pure heart, God calls us to be pure because he is pure. As Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, therefore you must be perfect or you must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. But wouldn't you agree with me, there are so many tantalizing distractions in our world today there's so much social pressure 
And there is so much ethical confusion over these issues that it feels overwhelming, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel overwhelming? And if you're a parent and like me, you are the first generation of parents trying to raise your children with smartphones, right? Your children are the first generation of digital natives in Western society. Doesn't it feel overwhelming that they're carrying around these devices that you have no control over? That their their friends and they are connected to the world and its power and its attraction. Well, imitating the world is the norm that Christians are called to reject. We are to imitate God, but also to reject imitating the world. Paul goes on in verse 6 to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. Empty means vain. Let no one deceive you with vain thinking and teaching. Paul makes an important point here. He draws something, he teases something out. Let me ask you a question. What's beneath your behavior? Why do people behave the way they behave? What's beneath our behavior and our actions are our desires, right? What's beneath our lifestyle and our habits are our priorities, our beliefs, and our philosophy. So I think if you're a serious Christian, if you're an intentional Christian, we have to ask ourselves, who are the Demosthenes of our culture today? Who is setting the sexual agenda in our world? And Paul is saying, don't be deceived. What's liberating now is as destructive as it was back then. Rather, he says, walk as children of the light. The teachings, the agendas, the, the, the philosophies of human identity and sexual practice today that are called liberating are as destructive as they were back then to the social health of your families and our society. They are as destructive as they were then today to our economic stability as a society, to relationships, and to the emotional health of individuals and marriages and families and children and churches. So Paul says, rather, walk as children of the light. See, light is important. What is mistaken for freedom or self-gratification in the dark is seen clearly in the light. And so he says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, this is really important for anybody that's, that's, that's tempted to be self-righteous in condemning other people from different perspectives. What is Paul saying that we should expose? Not the people. Not the people. He says expose the unfruitful works of darkness. We expo- expose the habits of our society. We expose the practices. We expose the agenda. We expose the mentality in the light of an alternative paradigm, an alternative message, an alternative lifestyle that we receive from the truth and grace of the gospel. For instance, Nancy Piercy, in her excellent book on human sexuality, uh, she says, people must be drawn in by a vision that attracts them. She, she, she spends a lot of time in her book, Love Thy Body, by saying, you know what, nobody's going to change their mind. Nobody's going to be convinced of anything if we're constantly condemning them and judging them 
as a Christian culture. She says, people must be drawn in by a vision that attracts them by offering them a more appealing, more life-affirming worldview with actions that treat people with genuine dignity and worth. So I encourage you today to expose your sexual identity to the light of God's truth and grace and to expose your sexual habits to the light of God's truth and grace. Coming into the light takes spiritual discipline. If you're wondering, where do I begin? How do I, how do I clean up my act? How do I pursue consistency and integrity? How, you know, how do I and my spouse uh, 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 fix some of the problems we're having? How do you, as you pursue a lifelong maiden or thinking about marriage someday, how do you think about all these things? Well, it begins with spiritual discipline. Yeah. Coming into the light requires spiritual discipline. You have got to know your Bible. You have got to be in tune with the Word of God, and you have to consistently be involved in the practices of prayer and meditation. Not every minute of every day, but it's got to be part of your breathing in and breathing out in life. The Bible, prayer, and meditation. You've got to be spiritually disciplined. As Psalm 119 so beautifully puts it, I have stored my word. I'm sorry. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Coming into the light takes spiritual discipline, but listen, staying in the light takes community. What has Paul already told us in the previous chapter? We are members one of another. That's how we imitate God. Spiritual discipline and community. We need one another to do this. That's how we imitate God and not the world with our sexuality. Spiritual discipline and community. Walking as children of the light requires discernment. As one author puts it, constant vigilance. Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. That sounds simple, but I think it's really hard to consider. And some of you may think, well, that's such a petty, ridiculous thing. Well, hold on for a minute. You know, our popular television series, all the way back to the 1990s, and now our, our most popular uh, uh, streaming services, they all do something very interesting. They casually sprinkle the world's sexual norms into their most beloved characters and into their extremely well laid out plot lines, right? Have you ever noticed that? But they clothe it all in witty humor and masterful plots. And what that does is it dulls my conscience, you see, because I want to laugh. I want to be entertained. I, I, I want to veg out at 10.30 at night when my brain is shot. Or I want to see, the plot is so masterfully constructed that I want to see what happens in the next episode. Or I want to stick with it and wait for the next season to come out. I get all of that. But with the humor and with, with, the, with the excellent world-class storytelling, I, I begin to realize that my conscience is beginning to dull. And I'm not as sharp and I become undiscerning. 
until as I watch that show or I stick with that series, I discover that it is either gently suggesting the sexual philosophies of this world or it is fully pressing them onto me. And social media with astounding precision and success is doing the very same thing. And listen, I'm not saying, and don't hear me as saying, that we must never watch those shows or see those series or engage in media. I'm not saying that. I am not gonna be legalistic about this. But are you and are your children ingesting it without discernment, without restraint? And here's a big one if you're a parent without conversation, without dialogue as a family. Maybe we need to snap out of it. Maybe we need to wake up if our senses have become dull by the philosophies of our world. Maybe we need to gird up our courage if we feel intimidated. And so Paul closes this passage by quoting an ancient hymn, most likely, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's not just talking about our eternal state of glorified, perfected bodies. He's saying, wake up right now. Wake up right now and see what the culture is doing to you and get a grip. And do not engage culturally by tuning out. Don't just be entertained. Don't just be overwhelmed. Practice spiritual discipline and stay in community with one another and practice a healthy, honest, safe dialogue with your children. Imitating Christ. Imitating Jesus is our liberation from our sexual brokenness and our sexual sin. We're all sexually broken. You don't have to be a, a, a serial predator to realize that you, as a broken human being, are also sexually broken. The fall of sin has even tainted that, my friends. And so Paul says, and did you miss this in the very beginning of the passage, when he said, imitate God, he said, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if, so if your accountability group is focused on not sinning, if that's the emphasis, not sinning, we need to meet so that we don't sin, you're missing the point. If you're trying as parents to protect your children by shaming them in fear against acting like the rest of the world and the other kids in school, you're missing the point. If your focus is to speak out against the world and your neighbors and your relatives in self-righteous indignation, you're missing the point also. Walk in love, Paul says. You cannot walk in the light if you are not also walking in love. And you cannot walk in love if you are not walking in the light. The right-wing, moralistic, religious emphasis in our world is trying to walk in the light without walking in love. And the secular, ultra-liberal emphasis that is dictating 
The sexuality of our lives and our young people and our children is trying to walk in love, but is walking in darkness at the same time. And we need both, and Jesus offers both. Because Jesus defined love by what? Verse 2, self-sacrifice and worship. Love is about laying down your own selfish preferences for the sake of somebody you are called to serve. Love is worshiping your creator who made you in his image and expects you to reflect his holiness in this world. There is no sexual ethic worth saving if it is not based in love and in the light of the nature of God. And so Jesus showed us on the cross that God-centered, other-oriented love is worth saving. It is the only kind of love that heals. It is the only kind of love that will outlast this world. Human sexuality is first about God and Jesus Christ. And I promise you, it is better that way because we are designed to imitate him. And so we forsake imitating the world in order to imitate our Savior. Jesus didn't need to have a wife and kids for us to imitate him with our sexuality because sexuality that pleases God is a sexuality that puts another person's needs above your own in worship for your creator. So expose your sexual identity and expose your sexual habits to the light of God's truth but also to the light of God's grace because his truth will define your sexual identity, but his grace will forgive and his grace will hear and his heal and his grace will restore our sexual brokenness. And may this church and may your homes be safe places to discover a sexuality that is built in the truth of God and the grace of God. And if you don't know what to do, and if you don't know where to start, you talk to me. And if you don't feel comfortable with that, just say to me, or say to one of our elders, or a woman in this church that you trust, I wanna talk about, mm, and we'll find somebody who can talk to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are Sometimes embarrassed and sometimes confused and sometimes ashamed and sometimes just brokenhearted over these things and sometimes angry. Father, thank you that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and so we have in him all that we need for practicing a godlike sexual ethic. Father, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that in this world. And sometimes we feel at a loss for our children and our grandchildren. But Father, we admit and we confess and we have hope that all things are possible with you. And so guide us, Lord, in purity. Guide us away from self-righteousness. Guide us away from boundless licentiousness. And lead us in your truth and grace. Amen.